Please turn your attention to Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. We're going to look at the Lord's Prayer, which is our fall sermon series. And here's Jesus' teaching of his disciples on how to pray. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Jesus says, This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are pleased to speak through your word and through your spirit. A word in season. Lord, help us to have open ears and open hearts to hear what you have to say. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned, we are doing our fall sermon series on the Lord's Prayer. Prayer is the way we connect to the divine, to the transcendent, to the supernatural. No, you all, but I think everybody in our life at some point needs this. We need divine help. We need the supernatural. Our church needs it. Our country needs it. Uh, if you watch the U.S. Open, you know this moment when Coco Goff won the women's championship as a teenager at 19. She knelt down to pray at her chair with all the fans watching at Arthur Ashe Stadium with millions watching on TV. Coco Goff knelt at her chair to pray in this moment of greatest victory, a pinnacle moment of her career, she wanted to pause and give thanks to God. Mary Jo Fernandez was interviewing her on center court after her victory, and she asked, what does it mean to win your first Grand Slam title on home soil? And Coco said, it means so much. The French Open loss was a heartbreak, but God puts you through trials and tribulations that makes this moment much sweeter. Mayor Joe Fernandez picked up on that, and she said, we saw you say a prayer. You have a lot of faith. How important has that been through this journey? Coco didn't skip a beat. She said, it's been so important. I don't pray for results. I just ask that I get the strength to give it my all, and whatever happens, happens. I'm so blessed in this life, in front of all those people at Arthur Ashe Stadium. Many people pray. Many of you will pray at various points, at high points, at low points, But many also struggle to pray. Most of us would like to learn how to pray better. When when, when Jesus' disciples heard him pray in Luke 11, their response was, Lord, teach us to pray. And he then followed up and taught them the Lord's Prayer. So this sermon series is really about teaching us how to pray. We we all want to pray better, I think. And and, uh, this sermon series is about that, learning how to pray. Um, I don't know if you have um, seen the Masterclass series on the internet, uh, but it is an opportunity to take a class with the best in the world. So you can learn cooking techniques from, with Thomas Keller. You can learn shooting, ball handling, and scoring from Steph Curry. You can learn chess from Gary Gasparov. You can learn to write from Malcolm Gladwell. And if you signed up for a class with any one of those people, I, I think you would, you would be eager to hear what they're going to say. You, you'd be hanging on their every word. Well, through the Lord's Prayer, we get to take a master class on prayer with Jesus. And I think we should be just as eager to hear what he has 
to say. So that we're, we're ready to hang on his every word. That's what we're going to do in this series. We're going to hang on just every word in this series. We're, I'm going to preach actually phrase by phrase. And some of you are wondering, you know, how are we going to do a whole sermon on a phrase in the Lord's Prayer? But what you need to understand is the Lord's Prayer is a model. It's, it's like a scaffold on which we hang all of our prayers. It's this, it's this model that teaches us how to pray, and, and we fill it out with our own prayers. So each phrase is really a heading for a whole area of prayer. And I hope through this series you begin to see how rich and comprehensive the Lord's Prayer is. This morning we're going to consider how Jesus begins to pray. He prays our Father in heaven. And what he's teaching us is that we, as we begin to pray, we need to remember and recognize who it is that we are approaching. Consider this for a moment. All social interaction is based on the relationship that you have with the other person. So if you're riding the subway in New York, there's only limited interaction that you can have with your uh, fellow commuter. I mean, you might be able to ask what the next stop is. But you couldn't say, for example, you know, it's really chilly today. Would you mind if I borrowed your jacket? The relationship doesn't support that. If you are approaching a friend, you can, you can become more personal. You can say, well, how are you doing? Like, I've got some time later today. Any chance you have time to hang out? You can say things like that to a friend. If you're approaching a family member, perhaps a, a child to their, their father, suddenly you might be able to ask, I'm a little chilly today. You mind if I borrow your jacket? You can say things like that to a, a family member. All social interaction is based on the relationship we have with the other person. And I think the same is true with God. Our interaction with him is based on the kind of relationship that we have with him. If God is just a casual acquaintance, then I think the prayer will only be exchanging pleasantries. If God is essentially a business partner, then prayer will essentially be negotiations. But if God is a family member, if prayer is as a child speaks to his or her father, it opens profound possibilities of prayer. I'd like to explore that with you today. To note first, Jesus does not teach us to pray our creator in heaven or our king in heaven, both of which are true. He teaches us to pray our father in heaven. Jesus teaches us this first lesson of prayer is we ought to pray knowing that God is our Father in heaven. What does that mean? I'd like to look at two things today. I'd like to look at God, our Father, and, God, and then secondly, uh, God in heaven. So there's two points today. God, our Father, and God in heaven. First, what does it mean to pray to God, our Father? When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, our Father, this was the way that he prayed. He prayed, Abba, Father. Abba is an Aramaic word, and it is the word that Aramaic-speaking children would use to address their father. So Jesus probably called his earthly father, Joseph, he probably called him Abba. It is a term of intimacy and affection. But used in prayer, it was a completely new way to pray, because the typical way that God was addressed in the Old Testament was with a name that stressed his majesty and sovereignty and lordship. Oh, oh, sovereign Lord, oh, holy one, oh, mighty one is how people prayed. It's interesting to note that God is called Father only 15 times in the Old Testament. If you, if you add it up, only 15 times, hundreds of times in the New Testament, but only 15 times in the Old Testament. 
And most of those times, God is referred to as a father to the nation of Israel or to the king of Israel. The average Jew did not dare call God father. It was too presumptuous, too daring, too intimate. Jesus is the first one to consistently pray to God as Abba, Father. And he's teaching us to pray the same way. If you have grown up in church, if Christianity has been your tradition, perhaps you take it for granted that God is your Father. But I would suggest that the Bible doesn't allow us to take this for granted. Because the Bible teaches that not everyone is God's child. We're all made in God's image. But not everyone is God's child or calls God, can call God Father. It's not a universal status that we're born with. The, the Bible says what we're born with, our status is as slaves and orphans. Slaves to our sinful desires. Spiritual orphans in the world. And one way the Bible extends to us the good news of the gospel is through this idea of, of adoption, of God making us his sons and daughters. So first, God chooses to adopt us. Ephesians 1 says, In love, God predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. When a child is adopted, think of this moment. It's not the child's initiative. It's the parents who, who, who take the initiative. It's not the child's choice to be adopted. It, the parents make the decision. They make it happen. They take the initiative. And so it is with God. When God adopts us as his sons and daughters, it's because of his initiative and his choice, not ours. Ephesians 1 says he predestined us for adoption to sonship. Second, God not only chooses us for adoption, he accomplishes our adoption. Galatians 4. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. As a way of saying, God accomplishes our redemption through his son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross in our place as our substitute. So that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven and we're saved. And we're also adopted into God's family. We are made his sons and daughters. God accomplishes our adoption. And third, he not only gives us the status of sons and daughters, he gives us the experience of being a son or a daughter. Romans 8.15, the spirit you have received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by the spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. You see, when God adopts us as his sons and daughters, he places his own spirit in us who teaches us to cry out to him, Abba, Father, that's, how you, that's, why, that's why you do it. That's why it comes up from inside. It's the Holy Spirit teaching you to do that. And that, I would suggest, is the experience of sonship. See, see, when a child skins their knee and they're in tears and they cry out, Daddy! At that moment, they're giving expression to their sonship or their daughtership, right? Who taught them to do that? They just cry out to Daddy when they're in need. And that is an experience of, of their being a child, of their being a child. And God gives us this very experience. And then fourth, God promises that he will consummate our adoption when Jesus returns. Romans 8 says the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. 1 John 3, which we already heard this morning. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. 
As a way of saying, God brings our adoption to full flower. We are adopted. But it's not been complete yet. We will grow up to be completely like our older brother, Jesus Christ. And our full beauty as God's sons and daughters will be revealed. So that, to say it again, to summarize, the good news of the gospel is how God initiates our adoption and how we receive it through faith in Jesus Christ. It's why we can pray to God as Abba, Father. You see, because God has adopted us as his sons and daughters through faith in Jesus Christ. In that moment, we become sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. And Jesus Christ becomes our older brother. And God's own spirit dwells inside of us who teaches us to cry out, Abba, Father. It is, by the way, why we end our prayers with that little phrase, in Jesus' name. Uh, it's not just a throwaway comment. We close our prayers with that phrase because it's an acknowledgement that the reason that we can approach God as his sons and daughters, the only reason, is in Jesus' name, through him, through what he's done for us. The reason God accepts our prayers is, there, is not on our merits, but Christ's merits. And that's what we acknowledge when we say, in Jesus' name, I pray this. It is, I would suggest to you, remarkable that Jesus teaches us to pray like he does. When I first met Tina, and then I was introduced to her dad, he was Mr. Wong to me. But when Tina and I got married, I began to call him what Tina called him. I didn't call him Mr. Wong anymore. I called him Dad, which took some getting used to. But what was interesting is he was not my dad, but he became my dad because of my relationship to Tina. And in the same way, my friends, when we become united to Christ by faith, his father becomes our father. And we are invited to call him what Jesus calls him, Abba, Father. My friends, these, these things, this is not peripheral to Christianity. This is not just an extra or bonus. This is the very heart of Christianity. So, so listen to what J.I. Packer says in his classic book, Knowing God. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's children and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. And Packer goes on to say that adoption is, in fact, the highest privilege of the gospel. There, there, there are many privileges of the gospel, but adoption, he says, is the highest privilege of the gospel. He says, to be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater still. So Packer suggests that here's a test of how well you understand Christianity. How much do you make of the fact that you are God's child? How much of, do you make of the fact that God is your father? Do you know that? Have you experienced that? Does it define your identity? That you're, you're God's child at, at root. That's who you are. More than your education, more than your job, more than your ethnicity, more than your zip code, more than your desires. It's my identity is rooted in this. I'm, I'm God's child. That's who I am. Does that determine your outlook on life? Does that motivate worship and prayer? This is what Jesus is teaching us, to pray to God as our 
father. Uh, Ron Dane was a running back at the University of Wisconsin, and in 1999, he won the Heisman Trophy. On his way to winning the Heisman Trophy, he wrote a tribute to his uncle, who's named Rob Reed, and this tribute was published in Sports Illustrated. That's how I saw it. His uncle, Rob Reed, was a pastor who adopted Ron Dane at age 15 when his mother and father got divorced. And he brought him into his family, brought him to live with his three children. They were li living in Berlin, New Jersey. And here's a tribute that Ron Dane wrote to his uncle. He said, I began to think about you in the Heisman Trophy. I remember when I first came to live with you and Aunt Deb. The first thing we did was to have a family meeting. All of us were sitting around the kitchen table, you, Aunt Deb, Rob Jr., Jackay, and Joel. You announced that no one was going to get any new clothes until I had as many outfits as everybody else. Well, Joel did not care about clothes then. Jackay wore uniforms to school, but Rob was jacked. He had so many clothes, it was ridiculous. And soon after that, I did too. For that, Uncle Rob, you win the Heisman. He says, I remember you traveling with me on my college visits to Wisconsin and Ohio State. We, we hated Ohio State, didn't we, Uncle Rob? That's why we beat them badly last week. <laughs> For traveling with me and helping me make the right decision, you win the Heisman. Uncle Rob, you go see Rob play football in Virginia. You go see J.K. run track in Virginia. But you still come out to Wisconsin to see me, too. For that, Uncle Rob, you win the Heisman. And then when you do come to Wisconsin, you slip me one or two hundred dollar bills in my hand. For that, Uncle Rob, you really win the Heisman. <laughs> when Rob left for college, I started to try out some of our tricks by myself, and I got caught every time. We never got caught when Rob was home. Like when I squeezed out of the bathroom window one night to see a girl. When I tried to get back in at 1 a.m., you had locked that window and the rest of the windows in the house. <laughs> and I had to ring that doorbell and look in your face. You never said a word. You didn't have to. For that, Uncle Rob, you win the Heisman. Uncle Rob, for never making me feel like a nephew, but always making me feel like a son. For that, Uncle Rob, you win the Heisman. That, my friends, is a great picture of the privileges of sonship. And that is why the, the, the highest privilege of the gospel is to be adopted by the God of the universe. We were once slaves and orphans, but in Jesus Christ, the God of the universe adopted us as his sons and daughters. This is our relationship with God. It should affect the way that we pray. We, we should pray with confidence. I mean, who dares wake up the king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water? Only his son. Only his daughter. And if God is our father, we can go boldly into his presence anytime, day or night, to find grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. We'll pray with confidence. We will pray with frequency. When my kids were young, Tina would have to beg me to leave the house to work. I like to work upstairs, and she would say, please go, go out and work. Because when I was working upstairs, and the kids found out I was working upstairs, they'd run upstairs, they'd knock on the door, they'd want to talk to me, play with me. Because that's the nature, right, of, of a relationship between a father and, and children. It's frequency of communication. We, we ought to pray with frequency. Notice one of the petitions in the Lord's Prayer is for daily bread. Not weekly bread, not monthly bread, but daily bread. The Lord's Prayer assumes that there will be frequency of communication with our Heavenly Father. We, we should pray with confidence, we should pray with frequency, and, and we should pray with trust. Jesus says, what father gives 
his son a stone if he asks for bread or a snake if he asks for fish. He says, if earthly fathers know how to give good gifts to their children, how much more will the Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask? How much more will our heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask? Do you trust that? Do you believe that when you pray? Do you believe that when, when you ask your heavenly Father for something, he will answer with a yes or a no or a wait? And if the answer is no or wait, there's a good reason behind it. It's not because God doesn't like us or hasn't heard. There's a good reason behind it, and we can trust that God knows better than we do. We can trust that because he's our Heavenly Father, he has good intentions toward us, like we have towards our own children. How much more will God give good gifts to those who ask? God has good intentions. He's a, he's a father. Can we trust that he will give us what we would have asked if we knew everything that he knows? You see, my friends, Jesus is teaching us to pray to God as our Father, and that makes a profound difference in prayer. Jesus teaches us to pray to God as our Father, and then secondly, he teaches us to pray to God in heaven. Jesus reminds us that God is not just any Father. He's our Father in heaven. And I think the emphasis here is not on where God lives. He's not, Jesus is not giving us God's address like, you know, my Father lives in Montclair or my Father lives in New York City. No, he's reminding us of God's transcendence, God's power, God's glory, God's majesty, God in heaven. Second Chronicles 26. O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand and no one can withstand you. Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. Ecclesiastes 5.2 says, Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. Jesus is reminding us of the God of Isaiah 6. High and exalted, seated on his throne. Even just the train of his robe fills the temple and there are seraphim around him with six wings. With two they cover their face and with two they cover their feet and with two they're flying. And they're saying to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with his glory. And Isaiah says, woe is me. I am ruined. It's what it's like to be in the holy presence of God. Jesus reminding us here at the outset, when we pray to God in heaven, our Father in heaven, God's our Father, but he's also the eternal God, the transcendent one, the one who lives in unapproachable light, whose power and glory would absolutely overwhelm us if it was revealed in full. I realize that one of the challenges to believe in this in this culture is this. Many people say, why, why need a God when science can explain everything? And that's, a, that's a common sentiment these days, and maybe you've come to believe that or been persuaded by that. But what we need to realize is that uh, for science, science itself is based on the assumption that there is a God. Or at least it's based on this assumption of constancy and regularity in nature. That's what science assumes. I mean, nature has to be constant and regular for, for science to happen. A always has to lead to B. Right? Uh, uh, experiments need to be repeatable. 
And so it assumes the constancy and regularity of nature. But what explains that? So why, why do we believe that, that nature is constant and regular? It points, I think, to a divine being who's big enough to sustain the universe. The philosopher Alvin Plantinga offers up what he calls the evolutionary argument against naturalism. He says this, if evolution is true, and many people believe that evolution is true, and if humans are highly evolved creatures from lower forms of life, which many people believe, then he says what follows from that is that our cognitive abilities have also evolved from lower forms of life. And if there's no God, if that has happened by time and chance, our minds have evolved, then how can we be confident in what our minds tell us if they've evolved by time and chance? How, what confidence do we have it, that our rational abilities are even rational if they're products of time and chance? How can we trust our own conclusions of what we see and, and think about? What gives us the right to do science any more than any other animal on the face of this earth? We just evolve from lower forms. Thomas Nagel, who teaches at NYU, he's an agnostic philosopher, acknowledges that human comprehension, of, uh, human comprehension of the universe cannot be explained by atheistic evolutionary process. It can't explain our rationality and the whole uh, 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 aspect of, of how we do science. I, you see, our rationality points to a greater mind in whose image we are made. So I would suggest to you that science does not make a transcendent God superfluous. Rather, it points to a transcendent God as the grounded foundation for it. Jesus is teaching us here that we approach God not just as an imminent Father, but as the transcendent God. Not just as Father, but the Father in heaven. Not just personal, but omnipotent. Not just loving, but holy. We don't approach him just with confidence and intimacy, but we also ought to approach him with reverence and awe. I would suggest that that is a hard balance to maintain. Let me express this challenge in a few ways. I think it's a, it's a, hard, it's a hard balance to hold personally. It's a lot easier to view God as either transcendent and holy or as a father and a friend, one or the other. And we tend towards one or the other. If God is our friend, and in our, our Father, then we lose sight of his transcendence and his holiness. And if we grab hold of his transcendence and holiness, sometimes he's distant. And we don't feel his nearness. It's a, it's a challenge to hold personally. I think it's a challenge to hold together in worship. I would suggest that if God is our Father in heaven, it calls for both joy and reverence in worship. Both. Not one or the other, but both. And so often it's one or the other. So often our worship is joyful that tends towards being casual with little reverence. Or it's the other. It's reverent, but then there's no joy. It becomes very solemn and very serious. And if God is our Father in heaven, our worship ought to be both joy and reverence. That's all. I think it's a challenge to hold on to, that, that balance. And then I think it's a challenge to hold to in our culture. David Wells is a theologian who teaches at Gordon-Conwell in Boston and one of the chapters of his, one of his books, he writes, is entitled The Weightlessness of God. Here's what he observes. He says, it is one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless. I do not mean by this that he is ethereal, but rather that he has become unimportant. He rests upon the world so inconsequentially as not to be noticeable. 
Those who assure the pollsters of their belief in God's existence may nonetheless consider him less interesting than television, his commands less authoritative than their appetites for affluence and influence, his judgments no more awe-inspiring than the evening news, and his truth less compelling than the advertiser's sweet fog of flattery and lies. He says that is weightlessness. A God with whom we are on such easy terms and whose reality is little different from our own, a God who is merely there to satisfy our needs, has no real authority to compel and will soon begin to bore us. That would suggest that if we have come to the place where God bores us, we have lost sight of his transcendence. Because Isaiah would not be bored by the God of the Bible. I think the way that we restore the balance is by looking at Jesus. I mean, consider Jesus. He said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Jesus was so gentle and so lowly that children approached him and were led to him. It was said of Jesus, a bruised reed he will not break. And yet Jesus was also able to clear the temple with a whip. He was also able to calm a storm that terrorized seasoned fishermen. Revelation said Jesus will return riding on a white horse, his eyes like blazing fire, many crowns on his head, a sharp sword out of his mouth to strike down the nations, and on his robe and thigh are written the words, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he comes leading the armies of heaven to vanquish evil once and for all. And if this is the Jesus that you know, gentle enough that children can come to him, and yet a mighty warrior before whom his foes tremble, and you can pray. So the Lord's Prayer calls us to adoration and surrender and petition and confession. And if we don't know this Jesus that is both gentle and glorious in might and power, I think our adoration will be half-hearted, our surrender will be partial, our petitions will be doubting, and our confession will be limited. And that, my friends, is why Jesus is teaching us to pray first and foremost, our Father in heaven. Because that is the way we can pray the Lord's Prayer. Here's one practical application for you in closing. Consider in your prayer life, beginning your prayers with a moment of recollection. See, if communication, the nature of communication is based on the person to whom you're relating, then we first need to remember who it is that we are approaching. Martin Lloyd-Jones, that great preacher in London in the early 1900s, said the first step in prayer for all the great teachers of spirituality was recollection. Meaning, taking a moment to recollect what we are doing and who it is that we are speaking to. That's what Job didn't do. Remember Job? Remember the flood of words that came out of Job's mouth just complaining to God about how he wasn't being treated fairly and how he deserved so much more? And finally God intervenes with a series of questions. So Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Who determined its measurements? Job, have you ever commanded the dawn? And it's a series of questions like this, and Job responds by putting his hand over his mouth as a way of saying I spoke too quickly. My friends, before we plunge into prayer, before we plunge into all our petitions, and there's a place for that, but before we plunge into that, maybe we should take a moment to put our hand over our mouth and recollect. 
who it is that we're approaching. That's what Jesus is teaching us, to pray our Father in heaven. Let's pray. Let's go to him now. Our Father in heaven, we recognize that you are very near, but also above us. You are imminent, and yet you are also transcendent. You are loving, and yet you are also holy. You are personal, but you are also omnipotent. And therefore, would you teach us to pray with humility, and yet with confidence, with frequency, and yet with trust. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.